Good morning. It's good to see you and to worship with you this morning. I've heard that a few of you have been a little grumpy that we didn't start right out in Genesis. So you can ungrumpify yourself because we are we're getting back to Genesis, which is the uh, series that uh, we started at the beginning of the year. So if you've got your Bible with you, uh, go to the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you, and it's as easy as it'll ever get today. Genesis is the very first book, so flip past the table of contents, and you should find Genesis uh, fairly quickly. There's a uh, Christian philosopher named James Anderson who has written a book called What's Your Worldview? Uh, it's there on the screen behind me. It's actually a really helpful little book. It's, uh, it's, it's very small, uh, but it's written almost in the style of a, a choose-your-own-adventure book. And so it will ask you questions, uh, some of the big questions of life, and based on your answer to that question, it'll say, flip to this page or flip to this page. And what it does is it helps people who don't know what their worldview is. It helps them kind of locate it. That's written from a Christian perspective, so he has his perspective on what the correct worldview is, but it's a great little book, uh, both for you or for uh, somebody you know. But in this book, uh, What's Your Worldview?, Anderson defines a worldview as an all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and matters to us. He says, your worldview represents your most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the universe you inhabit. It reflects how you would answer all the big questions of human existence, the fundamental questions we ask about life, the universe, and everything. Every person seated here this morning possesses a worldview. You possess a worldview whether you have thought about the fact that you possess a worldview or whether you have intentionally chosen your worldview. There are many factors that go into shaping our worldview, not least of which are that the, the time that we are born into, the area of the world that we are born into, the families that we are born into, all of those things shape our view of the world. Every one of us possesses a worldview. But as I said, not, everyone, not all of us have done so intentionally. Anderson, in his book, compares our worldview to an atmosphere. I would venture to say that none of you, on the way to church this morning, looked at the atmosphere. I would also venture to say that very few of us, and probably no, none of us, remarked about various aspects of the atmosphere to the other people in our car. And yet the atmosphere is crucial for life on earth, right? The atmosphere has a role to play in the kind of atmospheric pressure that our bodies can sustain, the temperature that we, is, is, uh, makes life habitable here on earth, it has things to do with the very air that we breathe, and yet none of us look at the atmosphere. We simply live in it. It's simply there. Well, the worldview is similar to that. 
A worldview shapes the kinds of things that we value, the things that we choose to do, the internal system that we have for saying that something is right or something is wrong. There are all sorts of things that a worldview does to guide us and shape us, but we don't often think about our worldview. It's just there. There are a variety of worldviews, as you probably well know. But not all worldviews are created equal. One of the One of the important things about a worldview is that it not be internally inconsistent or that it not be self-defeating. It needs to tackle one of the big questions of life without casting shadows or doubt on the rest of some of the other questions of life. So take, for example, the worldview of relativism. Relativism asks one of the important questions that people ask, how can I know something? How can I know anything? Relativism answers that question by saying, you can't. Relativism says that there is nothing that can be known objectively as true. There may be something that's true for you, something that's true in your experience, a guiding principle that helps you in your life, but relativism would say there is nothing objectively true that we can know. The problem with this statement is that it demands us to use an objective statement of truth to make that claim. Relativism is inherently self-defeating, which means it makes a lousy worldview. Now, as I said, a worldview must not just try to answer one of the big questions, but shine a light on all of them and One person that notably made a major shift from worldviews is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, in his conversations with Tolkien, uh, famously shifted from an atheistic worldview to a theistic worldview, a major shift. And you've probably heard this before, but he once famously said this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, the sun, but because by it, I see everything else. Lewis was making a statement about worldview. It wasn't just that he saw the truths of Christianity in a vacuum, but one of the arguments for the truth and the the compelling nature of this worldview is that it also illuminated the big questions of the human experience. Lewis realized that Christianity is not simply a moral system that exists in a silo separate from the rest of the pieces of our experience. Christianity certainly contains a moral system, but it is a worldview that makes the bold claim of being able to make sense of everything. And believe it or not, Christianity didn't start with Jesus. It starts at the beginning of everything. Or to put it another way, it starts in the book of Genesis for us. Have you ever considered the fact that the book you are holding in your hands right now, whether you are actually holding a physical 
copy of God's Word that you can write in, or whether you've got it on your phone, or whether you've got it on a tablet, have you ever considered the fact, as you're holding this, you ever considered with wonder that the book that you are holding open and reading that we're studying together is possibly between three and four millennia old? And yet this book, three to four millennia old, knows nothing of the internet, it knows nothing of TikTok, it knows nothing of our experiences, yet it provides the foundations for the Christian worldview. It provides answers to the biggest questions that humans have been asking from the dawn of time. What I'd like to do this morning is review the first four chapters of the book of Genesis as we climb back into this study together, but rather than just walking through the first four chapters of Genesis, I want to review instead by asking four of these big questions, four of these ultimate questions, some of the biggest ones that any humans are going to ask or attempt to answer, and I want us to see that Genesis provides answers coherent with each other form the foundations of the Christian worldview. Question number one, why is there something rather than nothing? Why in the world is there something rather than nothing? As I was preparing this week for this, I came across this uh, humorous sentence where the person says, kind of a stepping back and and talking about that question and saying, we inhabit a universe with such things as spiral galaxies and SpongeBob SquarePants. The absurdity of that fascinates me. But most of the time, you and I are simply content to participate in the universe. We work in the universe. We play in it. We even may study a piece of it. There may be something about this universe that you happen to to know better than another part of it. And most of the time, we're content to just be in it and interact with it. But every once in a while, we step back a a little bit further and say, but but why is it here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, Genesis gives an answer to that question in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. It says simply this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, regardless of your own personal viewpoint on the mechanics of how this happened, the Christian worldview is that the universe and everything in it exists due to the creative mind of God. Genesis begins with God. And it's interesting the way Genesis begins with God. It doesn't attempt to give any of the backstory of God, explain how God came into existence, explain that He didn't come into existence, that He's always been. It makes no effort to prove that or to explain it. It simply states it. And of course, the Bible has plenty to say about those things, but that's not how Genesis begins, and we need to be reminded that our culture is not the only culture that's ever existed, that we have a different set of cultural assumptions than other cultures that have existed throughout history. No person 
And the ancient world would have read that statement and thought, well, what about, what about conceptions of the universe that are atheistic? That wouldn't have, they would have thought that was ludicrous. They may have quibbled about which God, but certainly a God. But Genesis introduces us to the God who is most certainly there, and it tells us that the universe and everything in, exist, in existence exists because God decided that it would, and He made it. And if this sounds far-fetched to you sitting in this cultural circumstance, let me just say it would seem at the very least to be no more far-fetched than the idea that matter originated from nothing and has developed into the staggering intricacy and complexity of life due to nothing more than the unguided process of chance and time. They are at least equally ludicrous. The foundations of the Christian worldview that we find in Genesis tells us that what we see and experience and interact with every day is not simply the result of the product of time and chance, but a personal God. God's signature is everywhere in the universe. Every time you stop and pull out your phone because you have seen a rainbow or a sunset or a sunrise or the moon or something else, and you try to take a picture of it, you are snapping a picture of God's signature because His signature is everywhere. The Bible tells us in other places that that the heavens themselves declare the glory of God day after day and night after night pours out the knowledge of Him. The book of Romans even goes so far as to tell us is that no person can be without excuse regarding the knowledge of God because God has sufficiently put His signature into creation so that nobody is without excuse. We can see Him. We may not have a full-orbed picture of who He is, but whenever we look up or down or left or right or through a telescope or a microscope, we can't escape Him. He's there. Just yesterday... Uh, My son Schaefer and I were out in the woods, and we came across this butterfly. And it's like, it was like this big. It was huge. And it was laying on the ground, and we walked up to it to get a closer look at it and realized that, unfortunately, this butterfly had died, which, of course, made Eloise very sad when I brought it home. Uh, But I, I, I picked this thing up. And I'm holding this butterfly in the palm of my hand because I want to bring it home and show it to everybody. And I felt for a moment like I was almost holding something sacred. Most of the time, we don't have the chance to hold something like that in the palm of our hand without destroying it. But I was able to bring that butterfly home and I was able to set it out on the counter and we were able to look at it. And we were able to see the incredibly intricate details of this thing. 
It's a, uh, I'm not, no, I'm not even going to try to say what it is because I'm going to forget. It's something about two tails and a swallowtail or something like that. Double-tailed swallowtail or something. If, if there's any butterfly experts, you can, you can help us out later. But you look at these, you look at its wings. It's got four wings. They're intricately designed. And there's this dusting of powder over it. And then you start looking at it in the light and you see the symmetry that exists between the sides of it. And then as you start to move it back and forth in your hand, you can see the light glinting off of it and it's yellow and black, but then you also see that there are blues in it and maybe even a bit of purple and maybe that yellow even contains shades of orange and red and you're looking at this beautiful, perfect thing And you are holding something sacred because you are holding God's signature, which is everywhere. The creation is prolific in declaring God's glory to us, and the Bible tells us it is sufficient for us to, at the very least, say that there is a God who is there. Now, the second question. The second big question is this. Why, out of all that, am I here? Why am I here? Well, from the perspective of a purely materialist worldview where all that exists is matter, things that can be measured and and weighed and seen and are governed by natural laws in a materialistic worldview, you are simply a lump of matter that just so happens to have developed consciousness over time. But you have developed consciousness and find yourself awake in a universe that has no meaning and no purpose. You don't matter. Isn't that ironic? You are matter, but you don't matter. Though this is often a message that we receive, 99% of the world's population is really able to live consistently with a purely materialistic worldview, and the ones who have tried to do so generally go insane. We have a stubborn persistence as human beings to look for, to create, to shape meaning and purpose out of these lives. We stubbornly seek it. Why do we put fire suppression systems in nursing homes? They're going to die anyway. They're no longer contributing to society in any meaningful way. Why would we make that investment? Why would brave men and women run into those places in the case of a fire to rescue those people? It's because we are capable of doing things that are not simply out of self-interest or that further, further our own survival. We have a stubborn piece of us that pursues meaning and purpose. And the Christian worldview that flows from the Bible gives us a reason for this meaning and purpose that flows from the answer to the first question. You are here not because you accidentally got here through some sort of unguided process. You are here because God created. 
And your life has purpose and meaning because you were made on purpose. Meaning and purpose are built into your very personhood. Genesis gives us at least two reasons why you're here that I want you to think about for a moment. The first is related to who you are. Genesis 1 and verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times in the opening chapter of Genesis, the author makes clear, goes to lengths to make clear, that human beings are created in God's image. Now, we have talked at length about what that means, and we don't have time to rehearse all of that. But the very least, we can say that the fact that you and I have been created as God's image means that we are here to reflect God because we have been made like Him in His image, and we are here in His creation to to represent Him. We are here to reflect God and to be God's representatives in the creation in which He has made. And this is the first piece of the answer that gives every single human being their value. Every single person has value because it is rooted in the very nature of their being. We are the finite reflections of the infinite God, which means that our worth is not tied to what we can contribute to society. Our worth does not decrease as we age so that as we are no longer in full possession of our mental faculties, or so we are no longer able to control our bodies anymore, we're unable able to, to do, we are no longer able to be contributing members of society, that does not mean that our value decreases. There's something about each human being that never changes regardless of what that person's capabilities are. Because every one of us have been made in God's image. I'm reminded of the poet John Donne, famous poet, who becomes blind. And as blindness frustrates him because he is no longer able to write on his own, now he has to engage the help of other people to get his ideas out on paper. And he writes a poem that's a reflection of that called On His Blindness. And as he thinks through, I think it's a sonnet, as he, as he thinks through this, laments this throughout it, he gets to the end, he, he's, he expresses a frustration with God that God has given him a gift that he can't use. But as he gets to the end of that poem... The very last line of that poem is he's reflecting on the role of some of the angels around the throne room of God. The last line of that poem is this, they also serve who only stand and wait. And what John Donne is realizing there is that there are some angels who stand in the very throne room of God and their very existence standing in his service brings glory to him. Simply being the people that God made us to be, even in our weakness and as in our frailty, brings God glory because we are reflecting Him. 
So, let me tell you this this morning. This morning, you need to be reminded of the fact that you are not a mistake. It would, would have been years ago surprising for me to realize how many people have that perception of themselves. Maybe because it was a mistake that brought you into this world. A mistake. Or maybe because you look at yourself and you look at everyone around you and you, you know the internal struggles that you have and everyone else seems to be doing fine and you're wondering what in you is broken. Or maybe you have had family members or people in your lives go so far as to tell you that you are a mistake or at the very least to insinuate that you are such. God says otherwise. You are not a mistake. You are not lost in the shuffle. You are not a meaningless speck in a vast, infinite universe. You are personally known by God who made you. And you are valuable because he made you in his image. There's a second reason we're asking the question, why am I here? One is to reflect God's image. The second reason is found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. The Bible says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The second reason or the second uh, uh, answer to the question, why am I here, is you exist to have dominion. Or if I could say it in a different way, you exist to cultivate You exist to cultivate. Human responsibility as it was given to Adam and Eve was essentially to make the whole world Eden. God God creates, He crafts a garden, He cultivates a place, He puts the first two humans in that place, and then He tells them as His image bearers and His representatives that they are to go and to be fruitful and multiply. The implied statement there is that they are to go out and make the whole world Eden, because it isn't. He's given them the template. He's given them the path to follow. Now, we've gotten pretty far east of Eden to borrow a title from John Steinbeck. But I believe that purpose is still woven into our very DNA. It is woven into your very DNA. It's why we do things like write poems. Have you ever stopped and thought about the strangeness of poems? Why is it that a person can take words and the sound of those words And the combination of those words and the arrangement of those words, whether it's heard or viewed, is pleasurable. Kind of weird, 
when you, when you put it like that. And yet, poetry is the cultivation of language. And why do we respond to it that way? Well, maybe there's something built into us by the great poet who uses words and weaves them together in ways that are beautiful. It's why we do things like write poetry. It's why we build sandcastles. It's why we invent alternate forms of energy. It's why we take pictures of the Crab Nebula. The dominion mandate is alive in all of us. So let me encourage you with something. We ask the question sometimes, why am I here? You may feel insignificant at times. You may feel like what you do is insignificant. And the reason you feel insignificant or the reason you may feel like what you do is insignificant is because there's no one there to see it. Most of us will die without so much as having a name on a park bench. We will be gone and we will be forgotten and we sometimes ask ourselves, if that's all it is, and this is what I spend all of my time doing, what does it matter You need to understand that what you do matters no matter how mundane it may seem. Kids, when you go to school, you learn stuff that you don't want to learn with people you don't want to be around, with teachers that are giving you more stuff to do at night when we just spend eight hours there, okay? You're cultivating. When you develop your minds to understand math, or understand our history, or to understand how subjects and verbs and pronouns and conjunctions all fit together in grammar. This is the dominion mandate. Your hobbies, maybe you grow things, maybe you build things, maybe you see the limits of your body and how far you can push it, whatever it is that you do, those things may seem insignificant, but God says they matter. Because when you delight in a butterfly, or you change a diaper, or you make a meal, or you email a spreadsheet, you're demonstrating the image of God in you again and again and again. God, we sometimes feel like, we sometimes feel like what I'm doing is insignificant. What I'm doing isn't going to be remembered. What I'm doing isn't changing the world. And I just want to tell you, God never asked you to do any of that. What God does ask you to do is to be faithful, to cultivate the little piece of the world that you inhabit for the little time that you inhabit it. What He does ask you to do is take the most of the gifts that He's given you to make things that are beautiful to look around at what's around you and to notice it, to make the lives of the people around you a little bit better. He asks you to cultivate your little slice 
And though it may never show up in a book or on the news to our infinite God, every single thing you have done matters. Number three, what's wrong with the world? Even the person whose worldview lacks any sort of coherent framework for moral categories. What I mean by this is it's, it's hard to construct any real sense of right or wrong in a world that just happens to exist by accident. But even the person whose worldview lacks any sort of coherent framework for moral categories recognizes that something ain't right here. Something is desperately wrong with this world. We live in a world where there are people who intentionally harm children. I cannot tell you the rage that that fills me with. We live in a world where whole places are plagued by famine. We also live in a world where we face the ongoing list of -of run-of-the-mill problems that you and I have every day. You're late to work and your car battery is dead. Have you ever tried to file an insurance claim? They're here to serve. Have you ever tried to cancel Comcast? That doesn't tell you that the world's broken. I don't know what to do for you. I hope nobody works for Comcast here. If you do, I appreciate your fast internet. It has not always been this way. One of the words that's repeated again and again in the first chapter of Genesis is the word good. If you were to take a pencil or a highlighter or a pen and just go through, you would underline the word good again and again and again. God looks at His creation and He sees that it's good. And at the conclusion of everything, the Bible says in chapter 1 and verse 31 of Genesis, and God saw everything that He had made and behold, it was very good. So, what happened that made this not very good? The answer is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she, gave also, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The first Human beings rebelled against their creator. God has put them in this beautiful world that he has hand-tailored for their existence. He has placed them in an atmosphere that just happens to perfectly sustain human life. He has has put them in a position where they can live in line with his good, good purposes and so that they can flourish in a way that they find joy. 
But they came to be, believe the lie of Satan, that God was not as good as he made himself out to be, that he was actually withholding good from them, and they overreached, not content to be like God, they wanted to be God. So they disobeyed. They were ejected from the garden. They were ejected from the presence of God. But the consequences of their sin were far more... I mess this up on the, on the first service too. I got my words all wrong today. They were more far-reaching, that's what I want to say. They were far more far-reaching, if you want to do that than the personal consequences that they would experience. Because as revelation unfolds throughout the Bible, we find out that Adam was not just a one-off. Adam is actually a representative of all humanity. That God promises blessing to Adam if he obeys for, for all f- those who would come after him, but he promises judgment if Adam disobeys both for himself and all who come after him. If that's a new concept for you, Romans 5 1 Corinthians 15, write those down, read them later. Adam represents all of humanity. But because of the consequences of his actions, everything from raising crops to birthing children has been cursed because of sin. That's what's wrong. Let's personalize it. You and I have to live in this world, and there are a lot of great things that we pull our phones out to snap pictures of, but there's a lot of things we don't take pictures of. There's a lot of difficulty in this world. There's a lot of hardship. There's a lot of heartache. Every single person Coming to this room this morning comes, to some degree or another, feeling the weight of the brokenness of the world. For some of us, things are going pretty great right now, and so the weight of the brokenness feels just a little bit like a feather. I'm aware of it, but not bad. But for far more of us, it feels like the whole Broken world is on our backs crushing us. It's crushing us either from the weight of what we have done, the consequences that still follow us, or the fallout from what others in our lives have done to us. I mean, when you think about the fact that you can, you try to do everything right for yourself, but there are people in your life that screw it up, that you're living with the consequences daily of other people's choices and sin, consequences that you can't escape, that you can't turn a blind eye to. The truth of the matter is, is what it means to be human is to live in relationships with other people whose actions hurt us, weigh us down. And one of the great burdens of being a pastor is the burden of knowledge. To look across 
a sea of faces that I am preaching to, and to know that as I'm saying of these things, I'm not speaking about them in a vacuum, but I actually know some of the broken world that's resting on many of your shoulders. So that leads us to the final big question that we want to ask this morning. Number four, is there any reason for hope? And I want you to know that I believe the book of Genesis and these opening chapters answers that question with an unqualified yes. Though Adam and Eve rebel against God and disobey Him, though we see that one of their first responses to their disobedience to God is to run and hide from Him, the Bible tells us that God asks a question, where are you? And that question is not a where are you Can you click the button on your phone to share your location with me? That where are you is an invitation that even in their sin and even in their rebellion, they can still come back. And then in the midst of of all of the all of the consequences for their sin and the listing of all the terrible consequences of, this, of their sin. In Genesis 3.15, we have something that theologians have referred to as the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. When God curses Satan, the old serpent, he says in verse 15 of Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. heel. There's a diamond here that we can miss if we're reading too quickly. There's something beautiful here that will be unpacked throughout the remaining storyline of Scripture. God is promising broken, sinful Eve that she is going to have a descendant who is going to put his foot on the head of the serpent. That's called hope. And this is not a plan that God enacted in the moment as if He had not seen this coming. The the impression, the mistaken impression that we could have is that God is so amazing that He could take something like this and say, guys, give me a second. I promise I can fix this. Well, the Bible gives us a very different picture. The Bible tells us that God had the solution before anything was ever broken, before Adam and Eve had ever sinned. In fact, before anything had ever been created, God had the solution. God had already made another kind of covenant. Some theologians refer to this as the covenant of redemption. It's the covenant between Father, Son, and Spirit, the three members of the Trinity who are going to redeem a broken world. And the Bible describes God's plan for us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Here's our key verse, verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. 
Now, for some of you, that may be like, wait a minute, I've got questions, and I don't blame you, but just let the Bible talk for a little bit. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Father, Son, and Spirit are united in purpose before the earth is ever created or Adam and Eve have even thought about failing. What is that purpose? To redeem what has been enslaved. To forgive what has been sinned. To bless what is cursed. To unite what has been separated. To repair what has been broken. So here's where we're going with all this. Lewis said that he believed in Christianity like he believed in the rising sun, not only because he could see it, but because by it he could see everything else. And Genesis lays the foundation for a comprehensive worldview that tells us not only about God, but illuminates even the darkest areas of our curiosity so that we can understand the biggest questions that we ask. What... This last question that we've been talking about does for us is it provides for us a framework of hope to live in because we still live in the broken world. And the fact that you and I still live in the broken world where we're sinning, okay, so we're, we're agents doing wrong in this world, but there's other people around that are sinning too, and that is really cramping our style. I say that flippantly, but there are people in our lives who do things that greatly impact us, that we can't get out of. There are difficulties of a broken world that we carry on our backs. There are some things that that are not going to be solved here, which is why you need a worldview that can account for that stuff, but also provide a framework of hope within it. That means that you can have the weight of the broken world on your back, and you're not always going to be skipping around happily, whistling a tune, but you always exist inside the framework of hope. That's what it means. And The good truths of the gospel that we read at the end of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 is it tells us that God's got this plan, He's got this purpose for the fullness of time where He's going to unite all things to Him, which means that though you and I have been estranged from Him by our sin, we are going to be reunited in fellowship. In fact, that's already begun to happen in those who are following Jesus now. 
But not only are we reconciled when we have been estranged to God, but the Bible actually says He wants to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, which means all the broken parts of you, all the broken parts of your life, all the broken parts of your relationships, all the broken things between heaven and earth are all going to be united and made one and whole forever. That right there, friends, is a worldview. We ought to live in it. If you're here with us this morning, you're hearing this talk of Jesus, we want you to know as an invitation from us to you that the Bible offers you great hope. If you will repent of your sins and if you will turn from Christ, not turn from Christ, Turn to Christ. I told the moms this morning, I said, don't worry, you're insignificant. So it's been a, it's been a morning. Did not mean that. <laughs> Speaking of insignificant. Uh, you can, where you're seated right now, repent and put your faith in Jesus and begin that process that Jesus is beginning in all of us where He starts to unite us to Himself. And we start existing within this framework of hope. Christianity is not the magic wand that fixes all those broken pieces now, but it provides a framework of how they're going to get fixed. And it helps us hold on till we get there. So let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Lord, we do ask this morning that you would help us to, to have in our hearts and minds and souls a thoroughly Christian worldview. We thank you that you have not left us on our own to wander on our own, but you have revealed yourself to us, that your signature is everywhere. I pray that as we go about our days, which, let's face it, are so full of the mundane, that you would awaken us once again to the poetry that's been there all along. I pray that you would help us to cultivate the corner you've given us as we experience the brokenness of the world. I pray that you would help us to experience it with hope when all things are united in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.